1 Samuel chapter 9, Meeting Saul, that's this evening's title. I intend to be fair in my analysis of Saul, but fair and, uh, I don't know, positive are not the same thing. And truth and facts are not changed by our feelings, regardless of how passionate we may be about those feelings. Saul turns out to be a fool. Um, his, this chapter is laced with hints about just how shallow this man is. And I, I'm not sure it's intentional, the, the writer, the historian, Samuel being a part of it. The Holy Spirit certainly intentional on his part. Other evil characters in the scripture come to mind just from this book of Samuel, these two books. There's Nabal the fool, wouldn't want to be married to him. Doeg the savage, wouldn't want him in my neighborhood. Amnon the rapist, the incestuous rapist, certainly wouldn't want him in my family. Jonadab, his sickening friend, don't need friends like that. And then, of course, Absalom what we would probably say a narcissist, but a dangerous one at that. Yet, all those men did not cause as much grief, unnecessary grief, as did Saul, though Absalom comes close. And so we'll be spending uh, the rest of the book of 1 Samuel considering uh, this man who is... Uh, Loaded, his character loaded with lessons for us. Young men, don't be this way. Old men, don't be this way. Uh, be on guard. Verse 1, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. Now, if you want to go read those difficult names, you can. But Kish is his father's name. He was a man of influence. He was a man of wealth. He was... The Bible says in the Hebrew, he was a gibor. He was a mighty man, a man of power. Nimrod was a mighty hunter and a gibor. And Kish is a man of wealth. Boaz was said to have been a gibor, a man of wealth and means. Saul was from a rich and powerful family of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, that's his background. We know that he's... Uh, He's a rich kid. That's not bad in itself. There are others in scriptures who are rich kids, and they turned out to be quite fine. So that does not excuse his behavior that we'll come across in the following chapters. Now, if you've never read about Saul, if you've never heard about him, and you come to this ninth chapter, you may miss all of the lessons that are attached to some of the things about him in this early stage. And looking at verse 2 now, and he had a choice... Uh, pardon me, and he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And so the son of Kish, Kish, this mighty man, had this handsome, tall son. This is his external appearance. Visually, he will satisfy the profile of what the people think a king should carry. And they had great expectations for one such as this. And when we get to the next chapter, in chapter 10 and 24, we'll read the people when they see him, long live the king. 
But then in verse 20, uh, well, I don't remember what it is, verse 27, I think it is, of chapter 10, some of the men said, we don't like this guy. Who's he? He's not going to deliver us. And so that's what he'll be up against. But here he is, tall, handsome, rich, but already a series of clues concerning his shallowness are starting to show up. There's no mention here in verse 2 of any care for God. It's all external. There's not, you know, he was tall, he was handsome, and he loved the Lord. None of that. It says from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Well, this would impress the pagan kings, the people who clamored for a Jewish king, and this, he will be their first king. They would have loved this part about him. His stature satisfied their imagination. They were confident in his looks and his appearance. In fact, so much so when Samuel goes to anoint Saul and he stands in front of David's eldest brother and he's tall and he's impressed. Surely this is God's anointed. And it was not. So by the time this is over, Saul will make it easy for us to dislike him. Because he starts out with these appealing, you know, external features that he could have used for the king. He could have used for God. Instead, he turns all of them to himself. Not, no one else. It was all him. David will make it easy to love him, but Saul will not do that. Saul's sins were spiritual in origin. That, that's with his problem. All, you know, all our problems are, are spiritual, sin-related that's why God is so against sin. And you, you preach it and people come to some of them, come to church. They don't want to hear about the sin. But God is saying, this is the problem we've got to work with. And we say, oh, I don't want to hear it. I like my sin. Leave me alone. You're making me feel uncomfortable. God is saying, I'm not telling you you can be perfect. I'm telling you to try to be perfect when it comes to your spiritual walk in Christ. And we all know one of the most difficult things to be as a Christian is loving towards those we don't find so lovable. And it is still a demand placed upon us. So appearances can be deceiving. You can come to church and you can sit through sermons and you can act like you're interested. You can take notes, but what are you going to do with those notes? Are they going to enter the heart? You go back and look at them and say, Lord, what do I do with this? Some seem to get away with fooling everyone because everyone seems to be looking at on the outside. But then and now and again, there are those that are frustrated because they can see beyond the outside appearance and they, they, they know. No one at this point is detecting anything wrong in Saul. We know because we know the story. In the book of Genesis, when the angels were to get Lot and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah, because God said, you know, the time for judgment. The angel, we read this when they're trying to get him out, <clears throat> Lot trying to get his sons-in-laws out, but Yahweh's, uh, where am I? Sorry, it's, it's, uh, we'll get to that verse in a minute. Genesis 19. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, get up and get out of this place, for Yahweh will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. So he knew judgment was coming, but they wouldn't receive it. 
So sometimes you can come across a person like Saul and you see this guy is no good and no one else can see it. And on a, another example of this kind of human behavior on a positive note is at the resurrection of Christ. When they came back and they said, he's risen. Luke 24, verse 11, their words seemed to be like idle tales and they did not believe them. And so all this says to us, discernment is necessary. The ability to see what is going on. Because God, you're, you're working, you're in fellowship with God and he's revealing these things and you're responding to them. That's what a discernment is. It's not natural. Spiritual discernment is something that is, it comes from a relationship with God. There are other types of discernment for sure. But spiritual discernment is supposed to run deeper. You're supposed to be able to tell, okay, you know, there's a devil involved here. This is demonic. Or this is, you know, the full-blown sin. Something's not right. Now, it doesn't want to make us all paranoid, judgmental of everybody. Oh, I'm watching you, buddy. I got, a, I got a bad feeling about you. That's not discernment. So God looks at the inside, because he knows. First Samuel, now, Yahweh said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance. Now, this, for those of you who don't know, I'm reading from First Samuel chapter 16. Now, fast forwarding to when Samuel will be sent to replace Saul and anoint David. Though the replacement won't happen instantly, but he will be anointed king right away. And so Samuel goes to the sons of Jesse, to the house of Jesse, to look at his sons, which one he's going to anoint. And as I mentioned, he gets in front of the eldest, eldest brother, and uh, Yahweh said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him, for Yahweh does not see a man as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. So there's Samuel, the great prophet, at this point in chapter 9, before Saul, he's looking at the outside. Yeah, he's just like, he's going to be the king. That's where it's going to go. But later, when he gets in front of David, God corrects him. He said, I gave the people the king they were looking for. Now I'm giving you the king that I'm looking for. That one was built by the people's imagination. This one, this one has a heart after me. The same, a similar thing happened with Absalom. That rotten son, and David had a bunch of them. As I mentioned, Amnon, the incestuous rapist, that was one. And then there's Absalom, the, the murderess who tried to kill his father. Second uh, Samuel 14, now in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Not on the outside, but inside he was rotten. And, of course, that long, luxurious GQ hairdo that he had left him hanging between heaven and earth on a prime target for Joab, the chainsaw, who skewed him. So, uh, what is inside is what counts. And uh, yet, even what's on the inside can be deceitful. The heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so we have to be on guard for everything, always giving it our best. Verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, please take one of the servants with you. Arise and go look for the donkeys. And so we've, we've met Saul, uh, Kish, his father. He was a, a wealthy man, a gibor in the, in the Hebrew. And then we've met Saul, taller than everybody else, and handsome in appearance. 
And now the, the father says to the son, I'm sending you on a mission. My donkeys are gone, which is an indication of his wealth. And uh, he says, take a servant, another indication that he was wealthy. And take a servant with you. Now, Jewish tradition says that this servant was doeg. I disagree with that because we're going to find this servant is on the ball. He's, a, he's sensitive to spiritual things. Doeg was a monster. And an Edomite. Not, he wasn't a monster because he was an Edomite, a non-Jew. But he was a monster because he was a monster. And he had no problem killing the priests. And we'll come across that much later. But verse 4 now. So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And then they passed through the land of Shalalim, and they were not there. And then they passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. And so what the, uh, the historian Samuel, of course, involved in this history is setting up for us is that they are looking for these donkeys, but God is in this. This is going to be a divine arrangement. God is steering Saul and his servant to Samuel. And we read this story and we say, well, if God can do it for a man like Saul, he can still do it for us who believe. And he, of course, the Bible is filled with this kind of lesson. The difficult part is God doesn't do it moment by moment. <laughs> these, these great moments of spiritual intervention are, are spread out. Paul the Apostle had more than his share, and he said, because of that, God sent a messenger from Satan to buffet me, to keep me from getting, becoming full of myself. Well, verse 5 now, when they had come to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. And now we're getting to some of the meat of this. This is the first time we hear the voice of Saul, and he's concerned for his, his dad. And, and that's, that's, this remark indicates that he has some goodness about him in his character. He's not, a, he's, not a, you know, he's not a creep yet. He will evolve into that. No man suddenly becomes base. Although I did have a nephew. <laughs> that's another story. You know, he, he's going to have every opportunity. By the time we get to, grace, to chapter 10, Samuel's going to say, the Spirit of God's going to come on you, and he's going to be with them singing songs to the worshiping the Lord. And then he's going to forget about it and go back to being what he wants to be. But this is decent enough. He's caring. He's a caring son. He's worried. Look, my dad's going to not be worrying about a donkey. He's going to be thinking, what happened to us? But it's not enough. It's not enough to be caring if you're going to serve God. That's a, a good, a, you need to have that, but it, that alone is not sufficient. There are many who serve humanity and don't serve God, and they are kind. One of the big problems with the so-called Mother Teresa is she had a kind heart for humans, but she was a, a heretic. She believed always led to heaven. Uh, Jesus said, what is the profit of man if he gains the world, loses his soul? Well, she was saying, I'm making people comfortable to go to the next life, even though they, they don't know about Jesus Christ. I'm not telling them. It's essentially how it went down. A lot of people don't like to hear that. Because they, they think that truth is secondary to kindness. God's truth is secondary to kindness. God says they go together. Truth and love, they don't get separated. And kindness is a part of love. What use is love if you're mean? It's indicating you're not loving. 
Had Saul shown God the Father the care he showed his earthly father, it would have been a different story. Caring for the feelings of those nearest to us is still not enough. Gangsters can be very kind to their family. I mean, they are drug lords that are very kind to their children while they're getting other people's children strung out on all sorts of drugs and other vicious things. Thug love. Nobody needs that. It's hellish. But on the surface, this is still a good start. God is not altering his truth because someone doesn't like his truth. And that's, you know, the facts really aren't interested in whether you, what, your, what your opinion is of them. They're going to remain the facts whether you protest or not. It is up to us to side with truth. Truth makes a demand on us when we hear it. When someone comes to the church and you, they've never heard the gospel and we tell them you're a sinner before the eyes of a holy God and you can be uh, forgiven, but you've got to come through Christ, that is a fact. And you don't have to like it, you can like it. But it's not going to change. Matthew 22, verse 16, And they sent him, they're sending those to Jesus, he says, And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, they're addressing Christ, We know that you are true, and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Now, it makes it sound like he's just this insensitive brute while he's healing people and changing their lives, right? But what they're saying is that Christ sticks with the truth and he does not move from it because people don't like him sticking with the truth. Yeah, I had a, uh, I don't know, fifth, uh, no, it was high school sometime, ninth grade or something. She was an older lady, an English teacher, and she would say, and it was, it was, an origi- it was not original, but coming from her at her age, if you don't like it, you can lump it. <laughs> she said, well, what does that mean? But I lump you. Uh, but essentially, you were saying it's too bad. There's nothing you can do about it. My mom would say tough. <laughs> oh, man, that was like, what's for dinner, mom? Cereal. <laughs> what? Tough. <laughs> she said, like, you have to live with this. I, I hated it. I, it was something inside of me. I mean, I didn't let her know. She'd throw something at me. But, man, it was just so final, so cold. But that's what truth is. The truth is, it doesn't care. It doesn't say, well, let me bake you a cake and see if we, you, you know, try to convince you. So, as I mentioned earlier, some prefer kindness over God's truth. And as such, they don't come into the truth. They do not become carriers of light. They actually work against it. They think they know better because of their feelings. It doesn't feel right. Well, but is it right? Others suppose that they are exempt from kindness because of truth. That's the flip side. I have the truth. I don't have to be kind to you. I know the gospel, and too bad for you if I'm mean. That's wrong, too. Again, Christian kindness is built on truth and love, and those two are not separated. Well, verse 6, And he, he said to him, Look, look now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass, so let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. Now, this is the servant that is, is speaking to us now. And 
um, he knew where the man of God was. Saul did not. The servant is initiating this. And that, of course, is attractive, uh, attractive to us. Uh, the servant knew that this man was reliable, that he was honorable. Saul did not. The servant was ready to make an offering to the man of God. Saul was not. These are the little hints that are coming out, this contrast that are built into the story. The servant becomes a dominant figure, while Saul is disconnected at this point as the man of God is introduced to the story. And uh, the man of God is an honorable man. Those two should not be disconnected, going back to truth and love. That's the honorable facet of our faith. The men of God fail, but they retain honor through perseverance, through pursuing, pursuing, nonetheless, the things that God has put before them. This is what makes David so special over Saul, as David failed also. But say David persevered in the paths of righteousness. So here's the Israel's future king. And he doesn't recognize that there's Samuel around. And the Bible has already told us that Samuel was known. First uh, Samuel chapter 3. And all Israel from Dan to Bathsheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of Yahweh. So why doesn't he know about him? Later on in chapter 10 we'll find out that his uncle, Saul's uncle, knew about Samuel. Why is Saul so removed from the whole thing? Is it because his house was rich enough where they really didn't need a spiritual leader? Were they that uh, self-important and so successful that uh, who needs the help of a prophet? We're doing pretty good with all of our possessions. So let us go up there. Perhaps he can show us the way to go. Then Saul said to the servant, but look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? You see, he's supposed to be the next king. He's supposed to be the master. The other one's a servant. He's acting like he's the follower. He says, for bread, the bread now vessels is all gone. And there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? So, of course, he's thinking on a carnal plane. He's not thinking about the spiritual man. He, it's just com somewhat common to bring a gift of gratitude, to pay your way. But let's be careful of this proverb found in Ecclesiastes 10. Money answers everything. Solomon said that. He had a lot of money. Of course, he found out money does not answer everything. But it answers a lot of things. So you have to be careful. The Bible comes and tells us right out, yeah, money is a, it's an excellent tool, but it is a vicious master. If you, if you use money as a servant, then uh, that is a good thing. But if you become its servant, uh, that is a bad thing. Verse 8, then the servant answered Saul again and said, look, I have here at hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way. Sort of treating him like fortune tellers, the prophets like fortune tellers. But here we have the empty-handed Saul, who was also empty-headed, but the servant is ready. See, these little hints, you, you, you know the story, you say, well, you're reading into it. No, I'm not. So, it, it, is, it, it is there on purpose. 
warning us not to be so shallow when it comes to spiritual things, to be more in tune, not so insensitive. A person that uh, can scarf down filet mignon like he can scarf down, you know, bologna. Doesn't even chew and make a a distinction between the two. Would you serve that person filet mignon if they can? I'd give them bologna. Keep the good stuff for me. I don't know if you all get that. Some of you I know got it, but I don't know the younger ones, maybe you didn't get it. Be sensitive to what God is doing. Don't miss it. It doesn't take you you won't you won't grow shorter by being sensitive to things of the spirit. And if you don't have it, if you say I've tried, I just don't get it. Well, have you asked God? And usually, well, not usually, but I've heard them say, Yes, I have, and I know they really well, if you have, then you have the lesson is to persevere, to push through, to not abandon, to not dictate to God. Okay, I've asked, you've got now two days to answer me, or else I'm moving on. Call out to him. Verse 9, formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer for... He who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. So a little bit of a history lesson here that uh, is given. A prophet refers to the one that speaks. God speaks through them. You could say they speak for God in that sense. Uh, Things that have been hidden from ordinary eyes. That's why they are called seers. But now the prophet covers both of them. Verse 10 Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So Saul says, okay, it's a good plan. Let's do it. And uh, spiritually and naturally, the servant is the one calling the shots. Verse 11, And they went up the hill to the city. They met some young women going out to draw water. And said to them, is the seer here? Now, this is a common occurrence. The women that was fell into their job description, they were the ones that would haul the water. And water is heavy. It's a lot of work involved. But Isaac and Jacob and Moses have met their, or, or their brides, their future brides, were somehow connected to women drawing water. Remember the watering of the donkeys by Rebecca. What a gal. Um, so... Verse 12, and they answered them and said, yes, there he is just ahead of you. Hurry now, for today he came to this city because there is a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. So some some sort of festival, uh, unsaid what it is. But Samuel, apparently, remember, he's an itinerant. He's traveling around in a circuit to different places, and he would preach the word there. And, well, this is where part of his uh, circuit travelings have landed him. And he's going to make an offering here on the high place, which is, at this point in their history, permissible. Not until first king does God say, you will not offer anywhere else but on, in this place. But at this point, this is permissible. Shiloh is destroyed, likely the Battle of Aphex, where they lost the ark and they got the ark back. The Philistines evidently ransacked uh, the temple there because we don't read of the, the, the altar and the other items joined with the ark again until David. 
um, so a high place uh, where they're going to conduct this offering. Verse 13, as soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up. For about this time, you will find him. Well, they weren't invited. <laughs> They're at the well drawing water for themselves. And it's kind of cute. They put that, you know, those who are invited. Not, not a protest. It's just telling it like it is. But you better hurry up. Festivities are going to begin. The reverence shown to Samuel as a prophet judge in Israel. He's a Levite. He seems to be... Uh, in authority over the priest, but not carrying out their duties, which is legitimate. But the reverence of the people, you know, no one's going to eat till Samuel blesses the food. I mean, that's, that's appealing to us to read that. It should be. If it's not, why is it not? What, what should the people do? I mean, do, <laughs> as Christians, do we not bless the food before we eat? And uh, it's fun that when sometimes someone gets excited and they, another Christian starts eating and say, hey, hey, why don't you bless the food for us? And they got a mouthful of food. But that's how you kind of playfully catch them. Uh, verse 14. So they went up to the city. As they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, this is an arranged meeting by God. And that's going to come out in the story. Samuel has to tell these things for us to know what is happening. In Matthew 10, we read, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs on your head are all numbered, some more than others. <laughs> uh, anyhow, that verse in, in Matthew, of course, a, a bird doesn't drop to the ground without God knowing about it. There's nothing that gets past him. He's omniscient. He knows everything. God cannot learn. And here he knows right when Samuel and Saul's paths are going to cross. And he has engineered it. And now it is happening. In verse 15, Now Yahweh had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people because of their cry, because their cry has come to me. And so when Samuel saw Saul, Yahweh said to him, There he is, the man whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. This God of the universe just kind of casually... See, there he is, right there. That's what I was telling you about. <laughs> it's, it's just so... Uh, it's amazing. And Samuel's telling this. He said, I'm telling you, God did all of this. This is what happened. This predictive prophecy, it's God tell, telling future events. And... Uh, the day earlier, the day before, Samuel was alerted this was going to happen. Now God comes along and he confirms this to him. Saul, he was not sent into this world to play the role of a fool. He was intended to play the part of a king. And he failed. 
And we look at that and we say, okay, if, if, if I'm called into this world to serve the Lord, he hasn't called me to be a fool. But I can be a fool if I want to be one. The choice comes to me. He was intended, as I, as I said, to be this great king. And when we get to chapter 10, we're going to see God investing in him. Helping him along. Giving him everything he needs. Taking away all the excuses. I know, so you might, you, your youth may get tired of hearing me say, you know, you go to a church that preaches the word, your excuses have been taken away from you. You won't be able to say to God, well, I didn't know. Um, serious business, faith, things about God. Every cemetery calls out to the living and says, this is serious stuff. You're going somewhere when you leave here. Not the body. That's of no use anymore. But what's inside? The heart where God was looking. You can either take that as bad news or good news. So if I was younger again, I would be asking, God, what do you want me to do? I hear these older saints telling me, all these things. What do you want me to do? And that would be the beginning. It might take a little time for God to give it to you. He may give it to you in doses because you can't handle but so much. And part of that experience is, is your development. Well, uh, he was intended to be a king, like I said, and he became obsessed with David's death. And what started that? Saul has killed his thousands. David is ten thousands. Jealousy. Well, envy. He wanted to be the center of everything. Life was supposed to revolve around him. And his little, you know, heart was, his little feelings were hurt. Somebody was better than him at, at something. And he hated David. He hated David so much for this. He spent the rest of his kingship chasing David, neglecting the Philistines, whom we just heard God say, "My people's calling out. I'm giving them the king to deliver them." He neglected that, sent whole regiments after David, until finally the Philistines got strong enough. They cornered him and they killed him and his sons. So many lessons about being distracted, in this case, being distracted, being pulled away, being seduced away. Is some devil luring you away into something you're not supposed to be doing? And that is um, the story of Saul. To the point where he became an enemy of everything that was righteous. Verse 18 Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? So out of touch with who Samuel was. You say, well, how is he supposed to know? Well, God could have alerted him, but there's just nothing really in this man. His spiritual disregard became legendary by the time he dies on Mount Gilboa. These are the early hints about his shallow character. So the first time Saul is shown speaking to Samuel, he doesn't even know who he is. And 
by the time this chapter is over and Samuel's going to be such a host, such a kind person to him, we're not even going to hear Saul say thank you. In fact, we'll just have to wait till we get there to see it come off the pages for itself. Knowing what we know, again, what's coming, we are ready for Saul's inability to see God in the godly. You can't even, you know, are, is, is there anyone here this evening that cannot point out a, someone else who is godly? I don't mean a family member you just love and think the world of. I don't mean a sports figure or someone. I mean somebody who you think that this, this is a person that is just trying to serve God with everything they've got. And, I, and you have no charges against them. Can you pick somebody out like that? Because Saul couldn't. In verse 19, Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them, for they have been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on your father's house? Well, Samuel has just gave himself a pretty strong introduction. He's telling him things that he, how could he possibly know? You'd, you'd think Saul would pick up on this. I mean, it's just like, again, someone coming to a, a, a solid church and, and getting a solid Bible study and not even knowing what they're getting. Hearing scripture verses quoted, not even knowing a scripture, and not even caring to know. Not even moved by them. Thief on the cross, you know, the two outlaws on the cross. One was deeply moved at one point, and the other one was never got it. So we don't get the feeling that the honor of being with Samuel has registered, even at this miraculous moment. You, you, would, you would think, right? You would just say, How'd you know that, Samuel? You know, what happened when, when, when uh, Philip, the Lord told him before, I saw you, I saw you, Philip. And he said, well, you know, he, Philip was so taken by it. And Jesus said, oh, because I saw you and, you know, said these things to you, are you, you, you know, ready to believe, are you? But not with Saul. The lack of spiritual sensitivity puts him in the same class with these characters, his lot, there's Laban, there's Ishmael, Esau, and a cast of thousands. These men were like goats. They just, you know, they were just totally and just ate, would eat anything. It's a whole different character than the sheep. He probably questioned the, the attention he was getting, and it doesn't appear he would question anything else. The Bible is very careful that when someone shows evidence of moving towards God, it points it out, like with Ruth. Naomi didn't catch it. She moved on, but Ruth got it, and the Bible takes the time to point it out. So here he is found in the presence of Saul, and uh, the subtle alarms are going off, this introduction to Saul, meeting Saul, saturated with his shallowness. So let's contrast again Saul and David's beginnings. Both men began, when we meet them, on an errand for their father. Saul is searching for his father's donkey, and he ends up finding a 
the crown. He becomes the king. What will he do with it? Well, we, we know what he's going to do with it. David started out bringing supplies to his father's sons, David's brothers. Of course, he ends up killing a giant. And there he begins to find his crown also, because that was his introduction to the king's court. And what did he do with it? Both started looking for someone else's things. Uh, One for donkeys, one for sons. Both received high honors. One trampled the honor, the other struggled through it. I'm interested in the one that struggled through it. Because it tells me it's doable. See, I can, I can identify with David. Sometimes it's a little difficult to identify with a guy like Joseph or, or, or Daniel or Paul because they're such dynamos. But David, I can easily... Yeah, David's a guy that just messed up and was still this person in love with God being used by... He was used by God until his death. And... That gives so much hope to the sinner. No sinner can say, I'm just so awful, God can't use me. I mean, look at David, what he did with Uriah. I mean, it's just, God says, I'm going to put this story in print because people are going to, as a young Christian, when I became a young Christian, I was just so impressed with King David. In fact, um, when I was called, my first calling to ministry was around the book by Alan Redpath, The Making of a Man of God, which is the life of David. And it was just, a, I was a new Christian. I knew, you know, I read through the Bible. I knew the basics. And then it started taking me out of the basics. And the character of David is just uh, something to fall back on so many times. Verse 21. And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite? of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin. Why then do you speak like this to me? Well, the Benjamites were almost obliterated. We read about that in Judges 19 and 20 because of this heinous sin that was committed in Gibeah, where Saul is from. They were the 11th in in size of tribes when they came out of Egypt. And then in the wilderness, when, well, by the time they're ready to cross into the promised land, they're seventh. But after that awful sin that, that brought civil war, they were almost reduced to 300 men. And so that when he says, you know, we're, a, we're the smallest of the tribes, yeah, because of your sin. <laughs> the way of the transgressor is hard. And uh, that's why you're the smallest tribe. So you say to yourself, well, is he being, is he being humble here or is he just facing facts? Well, he has a capacity for humility. It never left him. He just never did anything with it. Oh, David, you're just more noble than me. You're more righteous than me. Oh, David, you caught me again. He was just uh, the kind of guy that you, you, you catch doing wrong. He, okay, you got me. And then he go do wrong again and again and again. He never had an intention of really fixing it. He just manipulated people. And maybe you've met somebody like this in your life. We would not suspect, as we read this ninth chapter, we would not suspect that this man is a psychopath, that he's going to turn out to be a homicidal maniac, bloodthirsty for the innocent. Uh, even Samuel feared him at one point. He's going to kill me if I do. You know, for, just, he was just, a, just this monster. And so we read this and we say, be careful. 
he did not turn out to be something more. He turned out to be something less. So I ask myself often, after all these years, am I, Lord, am, am I missing something? Am I missing something? Am I, am I abusing something? Because anything I'm fighting, I'm fighting it. Well, of course, that makes sense to you, but I'm in my own, my own head. I'm just not saying to myself, you know, if I'm driving in, for example, and, and you know, you just feel frustrated with other drivers, <laughs> uh, you never get comfortable with, I'm, I'm good with this, this attitude I've got towards other drivers. As a Christian, you want to be perfect. And you can feel it uh, coming in. as just two people driving at the same speed, side by side, so nobody can pass. So when I put that pistol out the window, that car in front of me moved. No, it did not. I, I didn't do anything like that. But I could feel it. I'm saying to myself, I'm not going to say this tonight. And here I am. Uh, but I could feel it rising up in me. It's like, you know, it's just inconsiderate, rude people. Why can't one just slow down or the other one just speed up and get out? Why do they have to just roadblock? Oh, oh I, I'm in the pulpit. Sorry. I kind of like went to another place. So after that episode, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't tailgate. I didn't make any faces, I don't think. Because they come kind of naturally, don't they? Just kind of peek over. I knew it was that kind of person driving. So I just said, Lord, I'm, I'm getting better, right? My point is that the things you struggle with, what, one of the marks of a Christian is you struggle with them to your death. And you just never are happy with sin. Never just, ah, it's okay. It's really not a big deal. I remember yeah, when I was giving a Bible study years ago, it was a prayer meeting Bible study, and it was, uh, there was one lady there, and she was telling me about an interview she had, and she lied. It was, she said, but it was a little lie. And I said, well, it's still a lie. And we're getting into it now. She's defending her lie, and I'm not budging. And that's how it ended, pretty much. I was right. She was wrong. And I just want everybody to know that. I don't really want everybody to know that. But I do want to say uh, it's those kind of things that bother us. A Christian would say, yeah, I lied. And I, I wish I didn't do that. I did. I cracked under the pressure. I wish I didn't. But what we won't do is, oh, but it's okay to lie sometimes. Uh, anyway, verse 22. I didn't mean to go down that trail. Verse 22. Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about 30 persons. Uh, as we read this, you get the feeling Saul has this kind of a, a this, you know, the athlete's mentality where I'm a star on the field or in the game, and so this treatment of honor that I get wherever I go is to be expected. And that is how many athletes begin to think. They uh, are kind of uh, bothered when you don't recognize that they are who they are. Well, I say that because he's being treated as though he's, you know, he's a nobody. He's lost. He can't even find his donkeys. And he comes into town, and, and Samuel's just treating him with honor, and he's just not, it doesn't read as though it's registering with him. And he's saying, Thank you, Samuel. It's so nice of you. I mean, we just met today. And you just, you know, you're treating me like we've, we go way back. No, it's almost as though, yeah, you know, let's, fine, what are we going to eat? Uh, but verse 23 And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set it apart. So Samuel was ready. So the cook took up 
the thigh with its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, here it is, what was kept back. Here it is, what was kept back. It was set apart for you. Eat, for until this time it has been kept for you, since I said I invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. There it is. What's missing? What is missing from verse 24? What? I can't believe this. Thank you, Samuel. I mean, why are you treating me so nice? This is, this is amazing. A man of God like you doing this for me. I don't deserve this. None of that. All you can see is the top of his head and his elbows up as he's just eating. <laughs> just, just indifferent to everybody else. And every now and then he looks up and he goes, moo, and he goes back to eating. So the choice part of the animal was reserved for the priest according to the law. Now, either Saul, uh, Saul did not know that or did not even care to know it. And, but Samuel, you've got to say, he's probably looking at him just warm-heartedly and not looking at him like, what a dope. And he's not doing that. I would do that. But he is just kind of like, he's going to be the king. God has put him on my heart. Samuel's in a whole nother level. But somebody should be pointing it out. The, verse 25, when he had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. Now, again, it's not, not an A-frame house. <laughs> They're up there like something out of Mary Poppins. Um, the flat roof, of course. Uh, nice breeze up there. It's a choice place to sleep when the weather is right. In verse 26, they arose early, and it was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul on the top of the house, saying, Get up, that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. Uh, I don't know about you, but Samuel gives him a wake-up call. And it just bothers me that Samuel was up, and there's Saul just, you know, <laughs> just snoring away. And I'm very sensitive to all that's happening in this chapter. I, I believe the Holy Spirit is just saying it. I'm just, again, saturating the story with the shortcomings of a man who has no excuse to have these sorts, this sort of, these shortcomings that are being pointed out. Um, I would have been too excited to sleep if such a man like this had, had brought me to his house. But Saul acts like, you know, you know, I deserve this. It's just like anything. What time's breakfast? Verse 27, And they were going down on the outskirts of the city. Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go ahead of us. And he went on, but you stand here a while that I may announce to you the word of God. Now, the anointing is going to be private, and it's going to happen in chapter 10, which we won't get. Um, uh, he's not going to be installed as king until later in chapter 10, so more time is going to go by. So it happens in phases. But here, Samuel is this gracious host throughout the story. He's behaving like a man of God, like a seasoned minister, like a decent person. And Saul is just receiving it all. Uh, ignorance is no excuse. Just basic politeness. You know, again, is it not irritating? If, you, if you're talking, say you're talking to someone, and a person walks up, 
Isn't it kind of rude not to greet that person? Isn't it just to keep talking or ignore them? Just little basic, little tiny things like that mean something. And yet, to Saul would be that kind of guy, not even acknowledging the other person. You feel a temptation to do to not acknowledge the other person? Fight it. So he invites Saul to his dinner, gives him the best portion, provided him with a, a nice sleeping arrangement up on the roof, wakes him up in the morning, he gets him to go back home. He's going to give him a lot of detailed instructions. We'll get that in chapter 10 also. And again, we never hear Saul say, thank you, Samuel. Noticeably, it's missing from the story. So just going back over this chapter, we look at this. This is Israel's first king. Nothing stately about him. He's handsome. He's tall. He's wealthy. But he is he's nothing spiritual. Not one thing comes away from this spiritual. So imagine you go to church. And you then after church, maybe you go, you used to, it used to be people actually went to meet with other people. Now they go online. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. So you, you leave church and you go online. And your interactions with other people, whether it's texting or whatever it is, emails... Is there any hint that you were just ministered to by the Holy Spirit? Is there any comment? I just came from church. Outstanding sermon, as always. Or something like that. Is there anything, is there anything ever that registers with you when you leave the house of God? Or are you just like Samuel? You just come... Um, it's not Samuel, Saul. You just expect, you know, this kind of treatment... And it just never rings a bell in your head or your heart or anywhere else. I hope not. And if, if that has been the case, may you take steps to correct it. May we all be sensitive to these things. Let's pray. Uh, the story's just heating up. So that's just meeting Saul. The good stuff is coming. Our Father, lessons again abound as always. We come to expect them. Even in those sections of the scripture where it's a bit more veiled than usual, still it is rewarding to be exposed to these very precious words preserved for us from you. It is not by accident that collectively it is called the Word of God. We ask that you, all, you get us all home safely this evening, and we ask a blessing on this nation that righteousness would prevail. In Jesus' name, amen.